Encore, episode 282. Do you know how much cancer centers get paid to put patients on drugs? Today, I speak with Aaron Mitchell, MD, MPH. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. After that recent episode with Scott Haas, that was episode 365, where we talked about the real deal with PBM contracting, I kicked into high gear trying to untangle this whole apocalyptic honky-tonk we call benefits for prescription drugs. Notice I did not say prescription drug benefits because that would imply that pharmaceuticals are only charged for under the umbrella of pharmacy benefits. Ha ha ha, that would be just too easy. No, some pharma drugs are charged as part of patient medical benefits. An amazing primer for what that looks like in the real world follows, just pointing out that any self-respecting healthcare market distortion deserves another. And if anything qualifies as a market distortion, it's buy and bill. What I talk about with Dr. Mitchell today. In the following weeks, we'll chat about how the market has responded to this buy and bill market distortion that we talk about today. So next week, we're going to get into all the different kinds of bagging, the so-called brown bagging, the white bagging, the clear bagging, and what is this newfangled gold bagging? Spoiler alert there. Tune in next week. And here's another spoiler alert. While in the show today, we chat about how provider organizations tend to make somewhere between 4.5% to 20% additional over drug costs, there was a recent study claiming that 4.5% to 20% is chump change. Some provider organizations are in fact making four times to six times the cost of the drug, a very expensive drug, mind you. Lots of zeros here. In profit. In the show in two weeks, I'm speaking with April Youngchu and Eric Davis from USI about exactly and specifically how provider organizations can manage to perform this, let's make hundreds of thousands of dollars today magic trick. So, with that, here's your encore. In the April issue of Value Based Cancer Care, that's a journal. There's an article talking about a keynote presentation and a study highlighting a big problem for patients with cancer, toxicity. It's a fact that some chemo agents are pretty toxic, but today I am talking about financial toxicity. The financial burden of cancer care has a seriously negative influence on patients' quality of life. This keynote speaker quoted in the Value-Based Cancer Care article implored his fellow oncologists, think twice before ordering costly interventions that may have little impact on the clinical course, he said. This may be difficult for a number of reasons, and one of them is that oncology centers make money, a whole lot of money, sometimes the most money, from infusing cancer medications. It's this little payment paradigm called, in air quotes, buy-in bill. The cancer center buys the meds, and then gets paid an additional fee to infuse the drug. This fee is a percentage of the drug cost. You've probably heard a lot lately about the skyrocketing costs of some of these cancer agents. Realize that if you're an oncology center, the higher the drug costs, the higher your revenue. Now consider the patient suffering under the weight of increased cost sharing and employers and taxpayers who are funding this strange payment model. 
Today, I dig into this so-called buy-and-bill payment model with Aaron Mitchell, MDMPH. Dr. Mitchell is an oncologist and health services researcher over at Memorial Sloan Kettering. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Aaron Mitchell, MD, MPH. Welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you. Glad to be here. Typically, from basically what I've heard, an oncology center makes way more money delivering the intravenous drugs like chemo than they necessarily do, you know, even in their patient visits, if we're just going to cut to the chase here. Yeah. The administration of drugs is the big revenue generator for oncology practices, for sure. All right. So let's let's dig into that a little bit. So let's follow the drug and probably follow the dollar at the exact same time. At the end of the day, what you've got is the physician or, you know, the, the provider group that they're a part of buying the drug from the drug manufacturer and then selling the drug or you know billing for the administration of the drug to the patient and their insurer. This is the system which gets referred to in quotation marks as the buy and bill system. And how much do they bill for? That's the real reason that, that I'm interested in this. The physician administers the drug and then when they bill for it, they get to bill at a markup. Let's just give an example there. So if the yeah. drug costs $100, I get how much of a markup? So if you're going to be billing Medicare, which is the largest insurer for cancer patients in the United States, your markup would be around 4.5% right now. If you are billing a commercial insurer, that varies, of course, from insurer to insurer, but it's going to be significantly more. It's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 20%. The potential issue becomes pretty obvious, I think, because if the drug costs 100 bucks, let's just take the example of the Medicare patient, I get paid, mm -hmm. you know, four and a half. But if the drug costs $200, I get paid double. Mm -hmm. So the more expensive the drug, the more I get paid. Yes, yes. That's one of the so-called perverse incentives of the system that I find to be pretty problematic, yes. How do you see that manifesting in a negative way? The clear distinction which we need to make is the potential for how this could be manifested and what we actually know factually and scientifically. And I would say that factually and scientifically, this is a hard thing to study. So I would say that this is, it's a little bit of how this will manifest in physician behavior is things that, you know, stand to reason, but still awaits kind of the empiric, you know, confirmation. But I would say it is, it is highly likely based on this incentive that the buy and bill reimbursement system presents that physicians are going to gravitate towards the higher cost drugs because you make a higher margin and hence they are more lucrative. The thing that's hard that also makes this hard to study is it's a little bit difficult to disentangle that from simply what is the best drug for the best patient. A lot of the most expensive drugs are also the newest drugs that have either some benefit in their clinical trial, whether it's better survival or maybe less side effects or, or some you know, slight improvement in surrogate endpoint that makes doctors genuinely believe that maybe this drug is a little bit better than the old drug that it's replacing. So the incentives are kind of in, aligned to be both using the drug that seems like the, the newest and maybe the best thing for a patient and is also the most lucrative one for the oncology practice. My guess is that a lot of the use of expensive new drugs that is being seen in, in oncology these days 
it's mostly that people earnestly believe that these drugs have a have a scientific and like a real biologic benefit. At the same time, though, the financial incentive certainly inflates that and goes along with it. And I think would you know, on the margin is certainly I would say was most likely increasing the use of expensive drugs beyond what we would see otherwise. Well, if you think about this kind of using the same analogies as the rest of the healthcare system, you know, okay, fee for service. What does it pay for? Volume. Mm -hmm. What do you get? volume. I don't know what the acronym fee for the most expensive drugs, then what do you get? The most expensive drugs. I, I mean, yeah. to your exact point, I think it's a really hard study design. Totally get that. But at the same time, it's not. Yeah, it both creates the incentive for like given several drugs on the market, it creates the incentive for us to gravitate towards the more expensive drug. The way I would also worry about this manifesting is when new drugs are coming onto the market, rather than giving some pushback against the pharmaceutical companies and saying the financial toxicity on our patients is really high, these drugs need to cost less, I think it could make physicians a little bit uh, hesitant in pushing back on these high prices that we see coming from pharma, because at the end of the day, those high prices are in our interest as well. Maybe that's the way to, to do this study design. There was a, a drug, and this, granted, was a couple of years ago, and it was an oncology. But the team that was working on that drug decided that they wanted to increase their market share. So how do you typically, in any in economic 101 way, increase your market share? You lower your price, right? Sold supply and demand curve. You lower your price and you more people buy your product and, and your market share increases. So this was an IV med. And what they did is they lowered their price. And you know what happened? Uh, without knowing the particular drug you're talking about, I'm going to guess that the utilization went down. Yeah, their market share tanked. They had to raise their price to get their market share back. Wow. At the end of the day, I think what you're saying and what that example probably very clearly illustrates is the only person that loses in this is the patient, especially if that patient has some kind of coinsurance. Because if everyone's incented to make sure the drug price is as high as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say another anecdote related to that is while we do see physicians gravitate towards uh, generic oral medications, and once, in, once a generic comes out for an oral drug, we start prescribing it very, very quickly and it, and it takes over the market. That's the case where we don't make any money from it. One of my colleagues and my, my main mentor here at Memorial Sloan Kettering was involved in a study a few years ago that looked at a, uh, a generic version of an intravenous drug coming online a few years ago. And they found, I think, something exactly analogous to, to what you were just saying. When the generic version of that drug came online, we saw overall utilization of that drug fall compared to a competitor that was still, that was still at that time was brand name. You know, obviously, there's a financial impact to patients. There's a financial impact to taxpayers who are funding Medicare. There's a financial implication to employers who are funding commercial insurance of all of this. But, you know, if we're thinking about this really from the patient perspective, mm -hmm. what are maybe other ramifications of having a system in which everyone is incented to ensure that the drug prices are as high as possible? I think there are some serious and direct impacts on the patients. And the most immediate and obvious one is just the cost of drugs and the cost of care is going to be higher. There are a lot of patients in the United States that do have good insurance. And I'm even sometimes surprised when I'm prescribing and using these very expensive drugs. They're telling me, oh, don't worry, my copay is zero. I really pay nothing for any of this. I'm like, wow, that's great. So that is true of some people, but it's certainly not true of all. And if you have, for example, Medicare coverage, 
without a wrapper or a supplemental insurance plan. The copays are pretty tremendous for a lot of these drugs. And the higher the cost of the drugs are, the higher the cost to the patient is going to be. So financial toxicity is, is a huge and severe problem for a lot of patients. Second is that it's going to impact the recommendations that you're going to get from your physician in ways that might not always be perfectly aligned with patient interests. We've been talking about the the pressure, the, the potential draw towards more expensive drugs over less expensive ones. Often the more expensive drug, maybe it's marginally better, maybe it's just all the same, but if that more expensive drug that is therefore more lucrative to, to the provider is less good than the cheaper drug, and there certainly are plenty of cases where that's true, then the incentives are not aligned. Uh, likewise, if a patient is maybe at the stage in their disease course where not giving further treatment is the right or the best answer for them, which is still the case for many patients, many cancer patients as they reach the end of life. The time at which you stop treatment, that's another judgment call and another one where you know, when you stop treatment, it might be the best decision for you as a patient. It's going to be one where extending the course of treatment is going to be the right decision from the financial standpoint of your provider. So that's another case where because of the buy and bill reimbursement system, we could see the interests of the patient and the provider being in tension. Just recapping what you said, there's the obvious mm-hmm. financial impact. Some of these drugs are you know, literally hundreds of thousands of dollars. So the financial incentive, number one. Number two, maybe it's drug selection between an older drug or a, a less expensive drug and a newer drug, mm-hmm. especially given, and you had alluded to this earlier, that some of the newer drugs, maybe they extend survival time, a very defined period of time. And, you know, maybe if the patient understood how much additional it was going to be, the, the shared decision making might go a different way. And then number three, though, like, when do we stop? therapy could also be an impact to contemplate there. Did I sum that up well? Yes. Excellent. Do you think that patients realize the impact here? I do not think that patients realize this. And I say that because of the many times that I've explained this system to to other people and by the people I'm talking about, you know, friends and families, I get surprise and kind of shock and anger when I say that, yes, your oncologist is making money from not just from doing an office visit, not just from talking with you and helping you make the decision. They are making money from the drug they are giving you. People don't know that. And when they find that out, that is, is surprising and seems and seems wrong to them. So what needs to happen here? Like if we were going to solve the problems of the universe here, how do we approach this obvious conundrum where most patients, some of them did, but most patients didn't go to medical school. So far be it for a patient to really understand and, and get a sense of like what the best oncologic agent is for their particular situation. So like they're not in a position to, in some cases, even question what the drug choice is. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I agree. For most patients, they don't really have any ability to disentangle in terms of the recommendations they're getting from an oncologist, what is being driven by what is medically best for me and what component is being driven by what is expedient or financially profitable from the standpoint of the, of the provider. And there's really not. Hopefully, it's mostly the former. It's mostly that we're recommending and using drugs because we believe that they are, they are the best. 
So I do think that's the majority of it, if that's any comfort to patients. But I do think it's difficult to, to tell right now. I think in order to change that, there's really not anything that disclosure or greater transparency can do because at the end of the day, the incentive is still there. I, I think we just have to change the incentive. I see there's just no other way around it in my view. If the physicians or the oncology center is being compensated so much for the delivery of meds, then relatively speaking, they're being compensated less. And you can set me straight here, Dr. Mitchell. But, you know, mm -hmm. they might be compensated less for actually talking to the patient and understanding what the patient's needs are and patient-reported outcomes and all of the things that maybe a patient cares about that would be mm -hmm. important in shared decision-making. So do you see that because the financial models weighted so heavily toward procedures and drug delivery then toward cognitive services like talking to the patient, that also diminishes patient care at a certain level? Yes, I agree. And that would be the exact perspective that I would use in thinking about reimbursement reform in oncology. I think that the importance of the drug delivery in terms of billing needs to be significantly downweighted. And I would say that this markup or this 4.5% or this 6%, that should be taken out of the equation entirely. And the things that need to be upweighted include actually spending time and, and talking with the patient. And that could include, and I think should include both the, you know, the office visit and the cognitive work that the physician is doing in the room with the patient. It should include all of the follow-up care, because I will tell you, uh, in my practice, I would say about maybe 25% of the time I spend on each patient is actually the, the visit in the room with them. I do phone calls, I do emails, I'm talking with other physicians, like everything else that's, that we do for a patient outside of that 20 minutes, that half hour in the room with them. Like that's where all of our time is getting spent and that's value that right now is, is all we're all taking a loss on because I could be doing something else with that time, like giving chemotherapy. So yeah, I think that those other cognitive activities, the collection and response to PROs, the patient navigation, all of these are things which I think have a more often have a more immediate and direct benefit for patients, both in their quality of life and some studies show for sure quantity of life, but they're not being reimbursed to near the same level that the, the drug administration is. And I think that that really needs to be rebalanced. And how does that reform look? Have you given that any contemplation? Like, is it a different kind of fee-for-service? Is it a capitated, value-driven model? There are so many different approaches that I believe would be significant improvements on the status quo that I really don't want to you know, pick, <laughs> like pick my favorite child. So I would say in my personal view, I tend to favor capitated systems. At the same time, there are incrementalist approaches that have been produced by groups such as MedPAC, and then one that was even in legislation, I think it was like 2015, 2016, that was getting moved through to, to, re, to reform Part B. Uh, so both of them being more incremental approaches where we're not taking that 4.5 margin down to zero. We are like, we're cutting it by some percentage. And then we're also giving you a flat rate per drug. So you're still making money for drugs, but you don't have that same incentive to use like more expensive drugs versus cheaper ones. It's kind of trying to balance that out and take away that incentive. So there's a lot of incremental work that definitely could be done to improve that. But unfortunately, that hasn't gotten into, into law yet. So I think 
either huge <laughs> kind of pie in the sky changes towards a capitated system or incremental changes along the way to just reduce the magnitude of these incentives uh, it would be would be good. Do you want to relative to the capitated model, just in broad strokes, what that would look like would be like, okay, we've got a patient, you figure out how to risk stratify at some level, you know, and we're going to pay X dollars, and then we're going to measure patient reported outcomes or something like that as, as a quality metric. Does it look something like that? Yeah, I think that's a pretty, yeah, pretty good summary where you're I mean, maybe analogous to in a slightly different situation, uh, something like the, like the DRG model of compensation for inpatient admissions for Medicare patients where, say, you've got a pneumonia or you've got a roll out MI, roll out myocardial infarction patient admitted to the hospital and based on a lot of different factors, the CMS has determined what the the average expense of that admission should be in order to deliver all the care that those patients on average are going to need. And then the hospital gets that lump sum for that admission. Do patient reported outcomes get a little weird here though? Because unlike patients suffering from getting, a, I don't know, a knee replacement, right? At the end of the tunnel, there's a hopefully a bright future. Does anybody really know if a patient who has cancer, like the, the outcomes seem to be a little bit more tenuous, harder to determine what quality looks like. Does that make sense? How do you ensure quality of care in a capitated model that incentivizes less utilization? Yeah, like, you know, because yeah. patients die, you know, so like... Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, I think that the answer there would be, like, yeah, I, I'm somewhat cynical in my view of, of how much humans, including physicians, will respond to incentives. And so I certainly share that worry that I think you're hinting at, which is if you incentivize less care, then we're going to see patients getting undertreated. So how to prevent that from happening? Because that also would be that uh, a bad outcome. And I, I think it would have to be paired for sure with a good system of monitoring and reporting quality metrics. And the ones I'm thinking about, as you point out, the ones like survival are not necessarily the ones that would fit best with oncology. I think that it would be much more process measures, such as given a patient's diagnosis, given their comorbidities and their what we call performance status, or just how, how strong and how functional a patient is, certain we, we have and there are guideline writing bodies that that have sets of here are the, the list of treatments that a patient should be getting. And of course, some patients appropriately might not want any treatment. So the number wouldn't be 100 percent should get this treatment. But, you know, we'd be able to look at national averages and say, OK, of all the newly diagnosed stage two breast cancers, 80 percent got one of these two regimens, and we'd want to see that kind of held steady over time and that you all of a sudden didn't see rates of patient treatment starting to drop off. So I think that quality metrics like that, there are quality metrics for what supportive care drugs. So I think that, that there would be a lot of work to you know keep an eye on the system, even in a capitated model like that, for sure. And so what's your prognosis on this? Obviously, people are starting to, or maybe mm -hmm. just we're at a break point with employers, for one. You'd mentioned commercial insurers that are paying, on average, 15%, you know, for a buy-in bill reimbursement. Mm -hmm. At some juncture, like we're having this conversation now, and I know it's, it's kind of an open secret. So it, it's not like anybody who looks into this is not going to figure this out pretty fast. 
Do you feel like given the increasing insight into what's going on here that we're at some kind of tipping point and things are going to change? Or how long do you think that we're going to continue in the in the current model given the negative impact that we've just talked about? I have to be a little bit of a, of a pessimist on this. The current system, it works too well for too many people for there to be like a a large enough cry for change within the context of part B billing reform that we've been talking about for the most part. When this comes up, physicians oppose it because we make money on billing uh, on the buy and bill system for part B drugs. And we've opposed the legislation that was going through uh, or trying to go through a few years ago, and we won. And the physician voice, I think, is, is pretty strong in that. And so we're a little bit status quo biased, I think, because we are still being relatively well served by the current system. Our employers, the hospitals, uh, get to get to are increasingly uh, winning the consolidation war against insurers, and are therefore be able to charge upcharge more and more money and, and make the same procedures and the same treatments more profitable. So they are well served. The drug companies and the device manufacturers, clearly they are very well served. So there's a lot of inertia and there's a lot of interest in keeping things the way they are. The biggest group, I think, that is not well served by the current system are those who are uninsured or I'd say the increasing number of Americans who feel themselves to be underinsured, where even though they nominally have insurance, whether it's through high deductibles or through high copays, they are just unable to afford the care that their hospitals and doctors are telling them that that they need. I don't think that those are the people whose voices are being heard and whether or not the system should continue or the system should change. Now, all these patients that we mentioned, there's mm-hmm. another word for them, voters. Is it something that there needs to be some kind of grassroots effort amongst patients? Like, who do you see the forces are that, you know, if this system is going to change, you always need a champion. Like Mm -hmm. you need somebody leading the charge. Who's leading the charge here? For a change that would be as large as what needs to happen here, I don't think it can really substantially happen elsewhere except from the top. So I do think that it is something that would require like nationwide legislation. If I'm a health insurance plan, can I go to oncologists and be like, yeah, I'm not paying you that way? Or, Or do we have certain oncology centers in this country, you met, you alluded to consolidation, that have just such an incredible reputation that these oncology centers would never agree to a model that did not include the buy and bill reimbursement. Even if some other model was proposed, which may be just as rich. You know, are people addicted to the revenue or are they addicted to the way they're making the revenue, in your opinion? To answer that your question that I think was embedded in there, the answer is, is yes. So private entities can pilot or just straight out contract or engage in systems that are different than this buying bill. There are systems that do this and there are a handful of them throughout the country. I'm going to for now I forget the name of the hospital, but there is one in in Florida that was you know, made some press a few years ago for being the first ever oncology only accountable care organization. Back when the accountable care organization was getting a lot of fanfare around the passage of the ACA, I don't think they were on a fully capitated model, but they were on a model where their income and their reimbursement 
depended in a much larger way on patient outcomes as the as the metric rather than utilization and fee-for-service billing as the metric. So these cases do exist. I, I wouldn't feel comfortable giving any answer for like, like, what is the reason that such changes haven't spread like wildfire and and therefore remain like small little kind of circumscribed areas within a much larger system that is still buy and bill and still fee for service. I don't know the answer to to that. My guess is that it's probably a mix of the two things that that you cited. There is maybe some level of inertia for your commercial payers to just follow that general model. So I think that could be some component of it. And then also, yes, the consolidation and the ability of the providers to say, for you, Humana or Blue Cross Blue Shield, we're going to bill you for 20% of this drug and and take it or leave it. So I think that there's, there's components of both of those. Dr. Mitchell, is there anything that I neglected to ask you? I think one thing is the way that the Part B billing, that this this buy and bill system differentially affects large oncology providers and and small oncology providers. In short, it favors the the large ones. The reason gets uh, I'll try my my best to explain this. So we've been talking about this 4.5 markup. The 4.5 markup is on what's called the average sales price or ASP, and the the key word in there is is average. So this is the average price that all providers across the country have to pay to the drug company or whichever middleman when they buy the drug. But it's an average, and some people pay more, and and some providers pay less. Also, because of consolidation and the ability to negotiate, the people who get to pay less for the drug tend to be the larger providers. So if I'm, say, a large academically affiliated healthcare center, maybe rather than paying 100% of ASP for to get drug X, I'm paying, let's say, 96%. So for me, if I, I would still therefore get to charge CMS at with this 4.5% markup over ASP, but I've now got, if, you're, if you can follow the math, I've got mm-hmm. the 4.5% from above, and then I'm also getting the 4% from below because I only paid 96% of ASP to get the drug. So I'm making like more than that 4.5% markup. On the flip side, if I'm a small oncology provider who doesn't have such an ability to negotiate, maybe I'm having to pay 104.5% to buy the drug, in which case I'm making nothing. Like there are a lot of practices for certain drugs where they're underwater, like they literally lose money in giving this drug to a patient because they're buying it at higher than the ASP plus 4.5% that they get to bill for, which to me is that that's just uh, that's another like unconscionable part of this system where you've created incentives to use some drugs that maybe aren't needed. And in other cases, you've got drugs that may be the exact one that a patient needs, but now your your oncology provider, in order to give it to you, has to take a hit. And to me, I, I've always found it, I've always been a little bit mystified. And when I when I have these debates, and I mean mainly in Twitter and mainly with with colleagues, there's a lot of on the part of small oncology providers, people do seem very invested and defensive about keeping this current system. But I have been a little bit mystified that because I see I see them as as other people who are being hurt by it. And I think it is the the larger practices in the academic centers who who get to make the most money, they, they their margins are highest on giving these drugs. And, and there's the whole 340B drug discount where they get even, uh, they get to 
purchase their drugs for even less and, and therefore make an even larger margin that, that really favors the, the larger centers. So yeah, I don't want to leave out the fact that this system is something that I see as being unfair and kind of hurting a lot of community oncology practices that are really trying to do their best to care for a lot of patients in you know rural counties. And I, and I would see this as, as a system which, in changing it, could be better for them as well. So if someone is interested in learning more about the work that you do, where would you direct them for more insight? I mean, obviously, following you on Twitter is probably a good idea. Where else? Twitter, I will generally post everything that comes out from our group in terms of abstracts and in publications. And then within the MSK Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics website, you will find links to... Dr. Peter Bach's uh, drug pricing lab. Uh, Dr. Peter Bach is the head of our center and he does a lot of interesting work on drug pricing and policy. And so a lot of the uh, the interesting work that he does that get, ends up getting published, whether it's in the Times or the New England Journal, will come out with some interesting infographics and interactives and other like policy briefs around issues like that. So that is the Memorial Sloan Kettering Drug Pricing Lab. I'm sure you'll get there if you could, if you Google that. Aaron Mitchell, MD, MPH. Thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value podcast today. Thanks so much. It's been fun. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, relentlesshealthvalue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.